You're listening to Wine Pod by George Brown College. I'm Adrian Caravello. And I'm Doris McKillen-Bradley. Welcome back. Up next, we have Elise Lambert, Master Sommelier. What an incredible title to hold. Elise is one of five master sommeliers in Canada. That's a hard title to earn. You know, I studied for that. I wrote the exam and wow, really uh, years and years of dedication to earn master sommelier. And she's unbelievably giving. She does so much here for George Brown College. She's part of our wine symposium that we have annually. Uh, She does coffee seminars. She is just giving. One thing that I learned about her is that she also likes beer. I think most sommeliers will often drink beer, especially after a wine competition or a wine tasting. You need to get the wine taste out of your mouth. I know, you get mighty parched and dry from tannins and acid. Here's our conversation with Elise Lambert. Hi there, it's Doris again. Adrian and I are joined today with wine expert and friend of WinePod, Michael Fagan. We, we talk about the title of Master Sommelier and the role of sommelier. For those who don't know what that role really is, can you give us a brief synopsis of what it entails to be a sommelier in a restaurant or a, the title of Master Sommelier? Well, to work as sommelier in a restaurant is, is actually like, basically, you're going to be taking care of the beverage program. If, if you're a complete sommelier, not only like working the floor, you're going to be uh, purchasing one. You're going to be like a meeting agent to, to select product. You're going to be as well uh, traveling a little bit to make sure that you keep like fresh on what's up and coming and understanding new region and, and meeting producer and understanding vintages and so on. But taking care of the beverage program will be as well uh, putting figures and numbers together to make sure that your business is, is, is making money. Because after all, if you run a restaurant, at the end of the day, if you want to stay in business, you have to make money. All the figures and number needs to be like very accurate. And following that, of course, taking care of the guests, doing the food and wine pairing and some education with your team. Did you know when you started out that this is where you want to end up? When I started my journey in hotel management, my first wine class, I just fell in love with the whole concept. And it was touching more than only like discovering wine. It was the wine pairing. It was taking care of the guest. It was about geography. It was about history. So basically, it was like opening like so many doors at the same time, working on nighttime, working on weekends, working when everybody's having fun. Sometimes makes it a little bit difficult for uh, your social life. With family, it's been a little, bit, a little bit more difficult too because, you know, when, when it's uh, Christmas or New Year and you want to be with your loved one and you're, you're working, sometimes you feel like you're missing on something. This being said, after a couple of years, people get used to it. Like your friends and family, they kind of understand and those days become special on other dates so your christmas can be on the 26th or on the <laughs> 23 or you know your new year can be on the second like basically you kind of change a little bit or model a little bit of of that but overall it's it's all good for me it's 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 something that doesn't bother me anymore oh, that's good and you have, to, you have to find those balances. And this is the industry you're in. This is what it takes. And you find the special occasions wherever you find a special occasion. And when we, you're, you're working with, with um, the same people all the time, basically they become your family too. Yeah. So on the, the, let's say on Christmas or on New Year, you're with them. So if you have a good team as well, well, you're celebrating with them too. 
So it's kind of a second family that you're with. That's true. As we look at part of the role and we look at building a wine list, what are some of the key considerations to keep in mind when you're building a wine list? Don't forget who's your clientele. Don't build a wine list for yourself. You build a, a wine list for the people that are dining in your, in your restaurant or a hotel. Make sure that uh, you understand as well the food menu to buy wines in regard of what your food is all about. Respect your budget. Uh, if you have someone that is the owner or the boss or the person that is in charge of your restaurant, they have a budget. And basically, if you're breaking the bank, eventually you may lose your job. So basically, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the, those kind of things that you have to keep in mind when you're building a wine list. Okay. The most important, I believe. Food and wine pairing is difficult. What are three considerations that you take when making the suggestions? Funny enough, it's probably my favorite part, the food and wine pairing. I really like that. I would say first thing first, before t talking about food pairing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, what does the guest want to drink? If your guest doesn't want to have a food pairing, don't force a food pairing. If they want to have like some Riesling with a big steak, well, even if you know it won't be a nice food pairing, If they enjoy it, let them do. So first thing first, like guest is always right. Then if you really want to do a nice food pairing, consider that it's not always the protein that will dictate the color of your wine. It's going to be like the way you cook your protein, uh, the sauces and the accompaniment that will be uh, surrounding your protein that will make uh, a difference. Let's talk about, let's say, a salmon. You have your salmon and You know, you feel like drinking red wine with your salmon. Well, instead of poaching your salmon and serving it with a beurre blanc, maybe you can, instead of that, grilling it and put a little like um, a salsa of tomato on the top of it. So here you go. You're going to have your, your red wine with your salmon. Your protein didn't change, but the way you cook it will make the difference and the shift to your pairing. For me, the pairing is, is something that is, if you understand the base of it, it becomes quite, quite easy. And sometimes... If you want to have like the perfect pairing, it's going to be uh, about tweaking little things. And that's where the conversation with your chef in the kitchen can make a big difference. Because you can change ingredient in a dish, but you cannot necessarily change a wine. You can change a wine, yes. But if you really want to have the perfect, perfect pairing, having a good conversation with the chef and having him or her trying your wine will make a big difference on the little tweaks. It's very important to have that relationship because you can't do it by yourself. No, nope. It's the whole restaurant and, you know, whether the chef or the sommelier or the server, we're all part of the experience and it has to work together to be able to deliver at the end of the day. One of the challenges in teaching wine is that we're working with young palates and sometimes they just don't like red wine or they just don't like sparkling wine. How do you overcome the fact that you might not like a certain food or you might not look like a certain wine? Um, of course, that it's a, you don't have to like everything. A tasting is, is part of, of, of what um, somebody needs to do. I'm not liking everything I'm tasting, but it's important to taste because you're building your references. Pairing-wise as well, like there are food I'm not really big fan of, but, you know, I'm going to make an effort to taste and try just to see if it works. And as my sister is saying to her, she has two little daughter, you have to try, like, Just make, just try it. Like, uh, so for, for students, like, okay, it's okay if you don't like it, try it. Yeah. 
Like, I think that's a that's a key point. And uh, as a sommelier, as a student, as anybody getting into the industry, as we're explaining things to guests or to make that experience, it's not about what you like or don't like. Absolutely you ha- not. You have to be able to understand what it is that you're tasting and what it is that you're trying to explain to the guests to make their experience that much better. Definitely. Do you study just wine or do you also study other forms of beverage alcohol? I'm curious about every every liquid. Like, I'm a, beer, I love beer. I'm a big fan of beer. It takes a lot of beer to make good wine. Definitely. <laughs> and after a long tasting, a good beer is so good. It is. I taste coffee as well. I've been uh, I've been joining force with uh, Nespresso for a coffee pairing. And I really like it because it's it's a little bit kind of out of my sandbox. It's kind of new references and new taste and a new way of expressing yourself about the sensation. So the coffee is, is a world that I really like. I enjoy tea as well. And it's interesting when you think about teas or coffees. A lot of the same elements we're finding in wine, you find in those beverages as well. I remember doing some training uh, with a group of people that did not drink. They were underage. So we were trying to demonstrate the components of wine, and we mm-hmm. did it all through tea, from sweet tea to big, dark tannic teas. And you can find to get that sensation, and that's what it's all about is those sensations. Yes, definitely. I've, there are some some subject I, I, you know, you cannot master everything. Like I feel I'm a very good generalist, but uh, I, I'm, am I a specialist in anything? I have some topics I master better than others, but, um, you know, like when it comes to sake for me, I I took a class, I tasted the sake, but, you know, we're not exposed as much to to those beverages these days. So I'm just, uh, if you don't get in contact with the product regularly, you, you kind of learn and it's there on the back, but you kind of, you know, you need to refresh once in a while. That's so true. For somebody that's thinking of pursuing a career as a sommelier, what advice would you give them? Respect, uh, respect the product, um, respect yourself. And what I mean by this is, you know, we're still working with alcohol. So um, uh, moderation is key if you want to last for long in our industry. Keep good habits, training, sleeping, basic stuff that will make that you can last for long in our industry. For me, tasting is more about curiosity of discovering something than having this feeling that you get like drinking too much and, and you get like the buzz that is around this. I don't like it at all. I, I've, I've never felt good about that. Some people are drinking for the buzz. And if it's that, don't go in our industry. It's dangerous. That's it's so dangerous true. dangerous for you. Yeah. So um, that's, that's what I mean about respecting yourself. Yeah. And and there is a, t- a difference between tasting and drinking. Yes, and that's thinking. So take the time to think about what it is that you're tasting, and you don't need to drink it all the time. Yes. So spitting is key in our industry. If you're if you're in a work environment, like spitting is uh, super important. So when I go to tasting, like yesterday, I was working and and I had a Spanish wine class, and you know uh, people were having fun. It was like. You know, and people were not spitting because it was kind of an environment where people were exploring and it was it was not a formal class. But, you know, I had my spittoon and everything I tasted, I spat because I'm not there for for. for, Yes, I'm I'm having fun, but I'm not there to drink. That's that's true. mm. Now, one of the other roles, as you mentioned, as a master sommelier is you're also an educator. 
So let, let's talk a little bit uh, about Spain. So when we look at Spain, is Spain considered an old world producing region? And what are some of the highlights of the wine industry in Spain? Definitely old world as it's more than 3,000 years of winemaking. It's a country that has as well uh, the largest surface of vineyard in the world. So uh, Spain is very important in the wine figures, the wine world um, representing about a third of, of the, the old uh, European vineyard. So very, very important. Uh, Spanish wine, uh, for me, is, is living a, a revolution. It's completely refreshing. Like picked earlier, less oak, more of the organic work as well. So lots of things going on with Spain. Can you speak to some uh, a little bit about modern versus traditional and winemaking techniques uh, throughout the country? Modern vs. traditional, it's funny because I was discussing this with Talmo Rodriguez and he kind of did not agree with what is modern, what is traditional. But I would say that there are some regions that, that's been based on tradition. Sherry region, for example. Rioja as well has been based on, on tradition. Malaga has been based on tradition. Those are the, the founding like appellation that created what is Spain today. But this would be for me those regions that, that have like historical background. We do have some of those regions that do have historical background, but uh, that have been recreating themselves or, or, or growing in the last 25 years. And I'm thinking of, of for example, Rias Baixas. Rias Baixas, you know, in 1975, they had 200 hectares. Today, they have 4,000 hectares. That's big growth. That's a big growth in very little time. What is about um, tradition and modernity here or like, I would say that Val d'Ossalnes in Rias Baixas was was the traditional region of production with Alberino that was that was there that was the key varietal. It is still the key varietal today. Do we work it differently? I believe so because the young generation wants to keep it very fresh. They want to work organic. They want to uh, keep those wine for aging on lease to have a little bit more of mouthfeel. But all those. New people, they've been traveling uh, here and there in the world, taking experience in other vineyards, in other countries, and they're coming back home to their family vineyard that is based on tradition, wanting to do things differently, which is for me kind of the counterbalance of what's tradition, what's modernity. It's kind of linked together. It is, and, it, and you bring up a good point because you have to travel the world, you have to try your competition. Yeah. And it's not to copy your competition, but to know the styles of wines that are out there for consumers to make sure that you're still producing a marketable product. Definitely. So tell us, how big is the Spanish wine industry? It's huge. It's the third largest producer of wine in the world. Lots of offer on organic and biodynamic and great value wine too. Definitely. If you see like regions such as uh, Murcia or Valencia, where you have uh, appellations such as uh, Humilla, for example, you're going to find like, some beautiful value wine for like little money. Can you find wine these days at 15 or or dollar that will be organic and, and, and delicious? Well, in Spain, yes, you can. I've been discovering, rediscovering Garnacha. I have to share uh, this, uh, this, this moment uh, where I, I'm really a fan of Garnacha. I'm changing a little bit of subject. I'm, I'm going to, to uh, it's okay. something that I'm is really dear to me. It's okay. I'm a fan of Garnacha too. Call it what you want. It's a great grape variety. You like it? I do like it. Good. So if you like Garnacha, you have to go in his home country. Like uh, Garnacha, 
home country is Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be like very widely planted. It was the most important grape at some point. Why is that? Because it was it was uh, resistant to oidium. But at some point, Garnacha being planted everywhere, there was really low quality Garnacha. So people, uh, when the trend of uh, Sempronio uh, happened uh, 20 years ago, everybody started overgrafting like Garnacha to Tempranillo. So Garnacha lost lots of ground, but good news is lots of old vineyard has been kept and quality Garnacha stayed. And today, funny enough, there's less Garnacha, but much better Garnacha on the market. And some people are st have started working with like super fresh, high altitude, like a Garnacha that tastes a little bit like Pinot. Wow. The styles evolve. The style is completely changing. I, I have to share this with you. Sometimes learning a new language is difficult for a student. And our students are referring to Garnacha as the G grape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> George Brown, Garnacha. <laughs> the G grape. I love it because there is a, a, a bunch of guys working together in the Sierra de Gredos that, uh, that are called Commando G. Oh, actually, yeah? <laughs> for Garnacha. <laughs> Um, when we look at Spain as a country, it produces a lot of different styles of wines. Can you talk briefly about the different or key wine-producing regions in Spain? The most important is Castilla-La Mancha. That is on La Meseta. It's in the heart of Spain. Castilla-La Mancha is, is not necessarily renowned for the quality of its wine, but for the volume it's bringing, coming from a driving force that is called Airen. Airen is a varietal that is the most planted wide varietal of Spain. This being said, it's not necessarily seen uh, for its quality because most of it went to distillation. So this is the most important one. You do have a, another region that is quite important, but that we don't hear much about. That is Estremadura. That has as well this reality of production for wine that goes to distillation. So if you look at important region, like uh, volume-wise, you're going to have, um, of course, uh, Rioja that is producing uh, uh, lots of wine that are definitely renowned because it's uh, uh, one of the historical appellation, but as well for the quality of his wine. This region, funny enough, is living like um, like some changes right now in, in his own like DNA. I don't want to go into much detail, but if you're curious to see what's going on with Rioja, I would strongly suggest you you go and, and read a little bit about Rioja and Roll, for example, or Saben Canares. That is uh, what the new uh, face of Rioja is, is all about. Okay. And that's many people's first introduction to red wines of Spain. It's yes. Rioja. Yes. And there's, uh, as, as you know, at LCBO, a, a good selection, a large selection of Rioja on shelves. Great value, too, for wines that are five, seven, ten years old, too. Definitely good value. Yes. Uh, I'd like to ask you about your vision for female winemakers and female sommeliers in Spain. How do you see that evolving? I have to say that uh, the, the role of women is, is evolving everywhere. Um, the younger generation do not hesitate to, to take this, this position that were probably not available to them a few years ago. The Meritzel and Sandra that I tasted yesterday are like super young women. So I, I believe that this, this new generation is, is not scared at all of, of taking that. And same for sommelier. I think that, um, I, don't, I don't like to think actually it's, it's only, it's, it's, for me a good sommelier, is, it's, not, it's not a question of being a guy or a girl at all. 
I've been hiring like great female. I've been hiring some great male. Uh, a good sommelier is just a good sommelier. Uh, as a woman, if you want to work in our industry, make sure that you respect yourself, you respect others, uh, you, you know, you study and, 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 and you take uh, like the time to make sure you master your subject. But at the end of the day, for me, it's, it's not a question of being a male or a female at all. Being good at something is, doesn't have any sex. I'm, I'm sorry about that. That is so true. And in this industry, it's, it's, uh, sex doesn't matter. It's being able to provide the service, to exactly. listen to your customers, and to, to be that trusted advisor and guide to help them enjoy their experiences. Exactly. I've, I've, you know, I've started as in an industry that was very male-oriented. And what made the difference for me uh, from my first job is that I was more qualified than my colleague. And that's what made the difference for me. That's right. Of course, that my salary was probably a little bit lower than my colleague to start with. And that's life. Um, I didn't know my value at the time, I believe. That's why I didn't negotiate. And I was maybe uh, a little bit scared of asking because I wanted to have those positions. But um, I think that today things have changed a little bit, hopefully. It's continuing <laughs> to change. Yeah. And for the better. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That was our conversation with Elise. Catch you next time. Bye. <laughs>